This is Stand Up For The Truth, a packed hour of challenging discussion, addressing important issues and topics affecting Christians across the nation. Join the conversation via email at comments at standupwithatruth.com. Now, David Fiorazzo. Hello, brothers and sisters in Christ. Praise God. Thanks for tuning in. We've got a great podcast planned for you today that is unplanned in the way of script or bullet points. We're going to answer some questions that you sent in over the last week. I've got pastors Chris Quintana and Andy Woods in studio with me. Why? Well, the Prophecy Conference kicks off today at Appleton Calvary Chapel um, in Wisconsin, of course, for those of you listening online or from outside of the area. Um, it's going to be a great three days, and it starts this afternoon with Jeremy Higgins, and then Chris speaks at 2 o'clock, um, Andy Woods tonight at 7, I'll be speaking tomorrow morning at 9, and Chris again tomorrow afternoon at 3.20-ish. And again, you can watch that online if you're not in the area, if you can't make it. It's ccappleton.org, theme is Perilous Times, the Prophecy Conference, Great Lakes Prophecy Conference. So just to give you an idea of where we're going today, we do want to get to another survey that came out and said um, the results, over a third of senior pastors believe good people can earn their way to heaven. So we've got to get back to that today eventually. We're going to talk about the rapture timing. A little bit of a question came in on Ezekiel 38, and also a new term that, at least to me, the convergent church. Have you heard of this? We've been talking about the emergent church for decades and exposing um, apostates and heretics, but the convergent church, what's that about? And also pastors, their approach to political, and I put use that word in quotes, political, social, which are moral, uh, biblical issues. So I want to bring in Pastor Andy Woods, pastor teacher at Sugarland Bible Church in Texas, also president of Chafer Theological Seminary, founder of Andy Woods Ministries, and Pastor Chris Quintana is back with us, Old Path Ministries, that's oldpaththeology.net, also in Texas now, but is the former senior pastor of Calvary Chapel, Cypress, California. Hey, welcome, brothers, to Stand Up for the Truth. David, great to be here. Thanks for having us. Yes, thank it, you. It's good to have you both in studio. It's fun. I mean, we do this often over the phone, and it's great to have this where you can see each other and you know, kind of bounce off each other, and um, not literally, of course. But uh, <laughs> so, before we get to some of the questions that came in for you, for the pastor's perspective here, um, Andy, let's start with you. Just an update on your ministry, and uh, you've been putting out pastors' points of view, and you even got one done before you flew yeah. up to Wisconsin. Yeah, that's uh, we do a regular uh, podcast trying to cover contemporary issues and where they fit in with Bible prophecy. So that's in podcast form. Um, it's also posted, you know, different media places, Rumble, YouTube. And probably the bulk of my ministry is at Sugarland Bible Church, where I'm basically a verse-by-verse teacher. So we're currently studying Genesis, uh, Ezekiel 38 and 39 in oh. Sunday school, and also uh, the book of Zechariah, Wednesday nights. So, you know, I'm studying all the time, which makes me happy because there's nothing else I'd rather study than mm. the Bible. Praise God. I, when you said teaching verse by verse, are there still churches that do that? I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I know there's a lot. <laughs> and we're thankful for you guys. Pastor Chris, a little update on your recent Bible studies, ministries, what you're putting out there? Yeah, actually, um, for the first time in 35 years, I get a chance to just be sitting in uh, the church on a Sunday morning, but um, I do the evening studies uh, going through the, the Old and the New Testament. I always have those going side by side, currently in Titus and uh, and then in uh, Nehemiah, as far as the Old Testament is concerned. And like with Andy, it's the same thing. It, it, there's nothing I'd rather do. That's the one thing, even by relocating mm. to Texas, I I can still do that no matter where I am. I will say, I, I was um, I had to repent of my... It wasn't jealousy when you left California. It was the perfect time. I'm going, God must really love Chris Quintana because you got out of there. And, I mean, the state was already going down in every way, I think. And that's what's sad to say, what they've done with the government, but also even the churches, uh, they're mm-hmm. being attacked. And But there are still some good men of God out there, out there aren't there? There are still some solid churches there, which is great. And God's always going to have his remnant, of yep. course. But yep. um, we're just finding more and more of them deviating from what they once were. Andy and I were talking about this earlier today. Uh, churches that were once solid have just begun to fall away because they, they buy into the modern church culture. 
So uh, let's get to one of the questions. And Andy, since we're going through Ezekiel 38, mm-hmm. I thought we can start with you. Um, someone sent in a question Could the in, uh, about Ezekiel 38. Could the covering the land like a cloud, as described in Ezekiel 38, uh, in two places, not only be about the numerous people, but maybe about drones as well? Yeah, you kind of have to put yourself um, in Ezekiel's shoes. Um, he gets a vision back six centuries before Christ, um, the fulfillment of which wouldn't occur for another at least 2,600 years. And he sees things, and he's just um, struggling to describe what he sees. Uh, you see the same issue in the book of Revelation, where John is just told to write down what you see. Yeah. And he's a first-century man with a first-century vocabulary trying to describe things that could well be fulfilled in the 21st century. It would be like taking Benjamin Franklin and all of a sudden putting him into, in Houston, Hobby International Airport. <laughs> How could he describe microphones and planes and Internet and yeah. cell phones and loudspeakers? So these biblical characters, they keep using similes. Mm. That's the key word there, like or as. Mm-hmm. It's like it's like this or it's as that. And so obviously Ezekiel doesn't know the name drones. And so if he <laughs> sees a drone attack in a vision, um, he can't say drone any more than he could say Iran. He uses the word Persia. So could this great uh, uh, horde be drones? It could be. Now, uh, then again, it, maybe he's talking about something else. I don't know. I wouldn't start a new church over, you know, he's talking about drones per se, yeah. but, it, but it's a possibility, and it just relates to the struggles he's having to fulfill God's command to write down what he sees with very non-21st century vocabulary. Excellent, I think, uh, explanation. Thank you. Chris, what do you want to add to that? Because, I mean, you can go a lot of different places because of what Andy just pointed out. They didn't have the explanation of what we have today and the vocabulary to explain it. Yeah, and the same principle holds Mm. true just going 100 years. Uh, Try to have somebody in the 1920s explain a Tesla. They looked at you like, what are you talking about? You plug in your horse and buggy, basically. And and so um, the... There are so many passages similar to that. You could say, well, it could be this or it could be that, which just means, okay, well, it's plausible. And at that point, you just got to move on because there's no way to prove one way or the other. could be. Okay, so I want to thank Annette for sending that question in. And I want to go to another question here about the rapture timing. And here's the question. This comes from Joanne in Columbus, Ohio. Um, on a scale of 1 to 10, where would you place your confidence in the likelihood of being raptured versus experiencing physical death. And she says, parenthetically, yes, I understand that the Lord could take any of us home this very day but phys- by physical death, but asking how confident you are that being raptured is a realistic hope or expectation for those of us alive during this generation. And uh, she says I would likely uh, give it a 10. Let's start with you, Chris. Um, it's funny. We had this discussion on the way here. We really did. It was just one of those things. And you know, people have felt differently about this, but right, what we've just seen what's happened since COVID and how much has changed the world. Um, if I live to what is a normal, a normal lifespan, you know, I've still got another 30 years before I get to the point where that might be, you know, my, I would, I would see physical death just under normal circumstances, barring something unforeseen. If, if we've seen the world change as much in two years, what would it change like in 30 wow. unless God decides to just stop it? So yeah. uh, I used to say this. Now, I just had my 57th <laughs> birthday. I used to say, I believe that the Antichrist is alive, and I believe that he's older than I am. Well, mm. he's probably younger than I am now, <laughs> but uh, I still, as far as a lifespan, I, I, I put it very, very high, yes. So I, I want to piggyback on that and just talk about Yuval Noah Harari. And because uh, some people are saying this, this has to be the Antichrist. And then, uh, Andy, I want to get your idea of the rapture timing based on this email. But Yuval Harari, since he came on the scene, man, it, it's it's actually uh, it almost makes the hair. If you had hair on the back of your me- neck, it would stand up mm-hmm. by hearing some of the things that have come out of his mouth. What are your thoughts in, in light of the Antichrist? Ultimately, he he could be – there are so many people just like him. He just yeah. happens to have a big platform yes. and people want to hear what he has to say. So when you look at people like that, you can say, what an evil person, without it being personal. Mm-hmm. I just what he advocates is indeed just absolutely yeah. evil, but he is not mm-hmm. one. He's one of many. So he just has the platform. 
So when I when I see guys like that, whether he would be or not, I don't think he fits some of the qualifications, but it, the Antichrist will be just like him. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking about some of the things he says. Humans are just hackable animals. Mm. Uh, the resurrection and Jesus, that's just fake news. And you could go on and on and on. Uh, Andy, your thoughts on possibly both of these. First of all, her question about the timing, the likelihood of being raptured versus physical death. And then you just did a little piece in your pastor's point of view on mm-hmm. uh, Yuval Harari. Well, I, you know, I'm going to assign it a 10. Um, <laughs> but I would kind of qualify it this way. I think the doctrine of the any moment rapture, which we call eminency, mm-hmm. is something that the Lord has wanted every generation to believe in. Because it affects how you live. Yes. And yeah. you go back to James, uh, that would be, you know, 45 A.D., roughly, when he wrote that. Um, it says in James 5, verses 8 and 9, that, behold, the Lord is standing right at the door. So every generation is supposed to think he can come back at any moment. It's just what's unique about our generation is we are aggressively seeing the tribulation period set up. Mm-hmm. Uh, the world stage, particularly in the last two years, more than any other time I can think of in my lifetime, is being aggressively pushed into the exact scenario that the Bible predicts. So it's sort of like, you know, around this time of the year, um, probably November 1st, we'll start hearing Christmas songs on the radio and <laughs> Santa Claus in the department store. And we see all that and we say, you know what, Thanksgiving is coming because Thanksgiving occurs earlier on the calendar than Christmas. And so if the signs of Christmas are upon us, then... Thanksgiving is coming even faster. And since we're seeing the world, you know, aggressively being set up for the tribulation period, Mm. you know, the rapture cannot be far away. And so that's something unique to our generation. But I do believe the Lord has wanted all generations to think that they're the terminal generation. Um, In terms of the Antichrist, I have the same kind of answer. You know, Harari could be the Antichrist. But Many, many people in world history could have been the Antichrist mm, because Second yes. Thessalonians 2, verse 7 says the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. So Satan, who is not omniscient, doesn't know everything. He doesn't know when the rapture is going to happen. He doesn't know when the restrainer is going to be removed. So he's always had somebody waiting in the wings. And that's why there are so many people in world history um, that would be a great antichrist. Hmm. In fact, we've had some presidents here in the United States that almost seem like they're auditioning, <laughs> you know, for the job. Uh, because once the restrainer is removed, Satan will push that man forward. Mm-hmm. So he's always had someone waiting. It could be Harari. It could be Biden. Um, I used to think it was Clinton. But there's a prophecy in Daniel that says the Antichrist will not be a lover of women. So um, I saw that one coming. You knew it was, that was coming. Oh, All right. We, by the way, we are going to get into politics in the next segment and really, really dive into some things that a lot of pastors won't touch with a 20-foot pole. But we'll, we'll talk about politics. And I put that word in quotes because, you know, a lot of pastors don't want to address anything remotely political. And we might have to talk about the Johnson Amendment. Uh, we might have to talk about how churches closed down during COVID, wh- wherever this takes us in the next segment. But one thing, one thing I wanted to ask, did you want to say something? I, I, there's something that, that sure. you said that just sure. I thought was really a fascinating thing. It struck my mind that we here in the church, people will mock the idea of, of the, the doctrine of imminence, that mm-hmm. he could be here at any moment. But you mentioned something that probably one of the best proponents for imminence would be the devil himself. Mm-hmm. He has no clue when the rapture is going to happen, but he is busy about doing what he's doing because he knows it could be any moment. That's an interesting Amen. thing. Amen. The devil does know scripture yeah. very well. Yes, very he, well. That explains he, the pulpits yeah. in most of the churches. Yeah. <laughs> Satan believes prophecy like very few theologians and pastors do, mm-hmm. and he's got his man ready. Yeah. So I want to talk about this. We've got five minutes left in this segment. Um, next Maybe in the next segment, uh, Pastor Andy, what you put out in uh, your pastor's point of view of uh, senior pastors believing that good people can earn their way to heaven in in a new survey. Well, let's talk about what came out several months ago on inerrancy. Mm -hmm. You've got such a small number now of apparently Bible-believing Christian leaders, pastors, that have fallen away from the belief in inerrancy, and that's affected the population as a whole. I think... um, 20, only 20% 
of the population now in America believes that the Bible is the Word of God. It is inerrant. I think, I think it's down to 20%. That's in my, my presentation uh, tomorrow. Uh, if I find it, I, I know it's 20% of Americans. Now, that doesn't say Christians. Uh, that doesn't say whatever denomination. But yet, more Americans used to believe that this thing we call the Holy Bible mm-hmm. was God's Word. So let's talk about inerrancy and how important that is and that we've just fallen, fallen away from that. Well, that survey that you're talking about there, a lot of that research comes from Barna. Mm-hmm. And what's striking about it is it's a survey about pastors. It's not a survey about church people, church members. It's the pastors. And people need to understand that the pastors in our country and around the world are under attack. And the reason they're under attack is because of what Jesus said in Matthew 26, I think it's around verse 31, he said, strike the shepherd, you know, and mm. the sheep will be scattered. So if a third of pastors think you can get to heaven by good works, I mean, what are the poor sheep supposed to think? And that actually is an outworking of Bible prophecy because Paul, at the very end of his life, uh, in Second Timothy 4, 3 and 4, and many other places, you know, predicted that the church as we get closer to the end of the age, would run off the rails of truth, Mm. the apostasy of the church. It's a sad prophecy to think about it, but we're seeing the outworking of it right now as shepherds themselves don't even believe the core doctrines of Christianity. I mean, if you think you're saved by good works, you sure have missed the point of the whole Bible. Wow. Because Isaiah 64 and verse 6 says our good works... You know, things we do, notice good works to curry God's favor in terms of justification are as filthy rags. And so, you, I mean, how could you miss that? Yeah. And it's sad that a third of pastors don't understand that. And if they don't understand that, what are the poor sheep supposed to think? Well, we, this could open up a whole other can of worms. And we talk about the seminaries and yeah. their fall from inerrancy and other things. But, Chris, I'll let you follow up on that. Sure, because... Um he, this is one of those. If 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 righteousness in our own actions leads to salvation, then Jesus died in vain, like in in uh, Galatians. And yeah. you have people that will say, "Yeah, but he's talking about the law. He's not talking about our good works." So to the counter of that, he goes on to say in chapter three of Galatians, "If is then the law then against the promises of God? Of course not." For if there had been a law that was given which could bring about life, then truly righteousness would come by the law. Mm. So at least that you have a codified something that God had written down of do this, don't do that. And you can't even do that, let alone your own version of righteousness. It's impossible. So if if the pastors don't believe in the the inerrancy of the scriptures, that's going to have the trickle-down effect into the people. And you have a great example of the truth of that right there by looking at the condition of the church. And, yeah, there's a, a saying that um, uh, politics is downstream from culture. And we've got a culture now that Barna, actually, I'll, I'm, I'm quoting him from one of his surveys, said we've got the culture influencing Christian churches more than the church is influencing it's just supposed to be the other way around because we've forgotten the concept of salt and light and our, how we are supposed to be influenced. We've got to talk a little bit more about that when we come back, inerrancy, the falling away, apostasy in the church. We're also going to talk about denominations and what they believe about communion, holy communion, about the Eucharist, about the communion. Because um, we've got a question from uh, someone that sent in, uh, there's a new term for a church that I had not heard, and I'm not sure if Andy or Chris had either. But we have definitely covered the emergent church for quite a number of years and exposed a lot of, um, well, counterfeits. So we'll do more of that when we come back and read this next question from a listener on Stand Up For The Truth with Pastor Andy Woods and Chris Quintana. Keep it right here. Your monthly financial support of StandUpForTheTruth.com is needed and appreciated. Now, back to today's Stand Up For The Truth with David Fiorazzo. We are blessed to have in studio pastors Chris Quintana and Andy Woods, both speaking at the Great Lakes Prophecy Conference, kicking off today at Appleton, Wisconsin, Calvary Chapel of Appleton. And you can watch it online at ccappleton.org. And you can still register, but it's right now it's first come, first served because register was registration was stopped a day or two ago. 
However, you can still see and, and show up if there's enough room, and they will let you know uh, before, obviously, you come to the church. So um, let's talk about communion. Let's talk about the Eucharist. Let's talk about different denominations and how they celebrate the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Andy, we had a fascinating conversation, and with Chris, um, because we were talking about the question that we're about to get to from one of our listeners brings up this idea of an evangelical church kind of going back to some traditions and some, you know, something that would be classified as liturgical. So, Andy, you grew up Episcopalian, correct? Mm-hmm. So let's talk a little bit about that and how you guys celebrated communion. How is that different from Roman Catholicism? And as you guys know, listening on the air right now, we've had Mike Gendron on many times, and he often talks about transubstantiation. We need to understand where people get that, saying they get it from Scripture, but is it Scripture or is it tradition, and why do people do it differently, Andy? Well, there's a, there's a continuum, and let's just kind of sketch it out this way. On the, the left, we would put transubstantiation, which is the idea that when you are partaking in the elements you're actually re-crucifying Jesus every single Sunday. You're, you're partaking of his physical body and physical blood. It, as was noted earlier, it comes from a misreading of John 6, um, where Jesus claims to be, you know, eat of my flesh. If people would back up in the chapter, they would see verse 35, where Jesus says, I am the, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Mm-hmm. And there he's exhorting people to believe. So he's using himself, you know, as an example, a metaphor of bread and eating of him earlier in the chapter is defined as believing. In mm-hmm. him. So people, unfortunately, they go to verses 53 to 57 first without reading verse 35 first. And the whole matter would be cleared up if they did that. But context. Context. <laughs> um, so there's transubstantiation. Now, Luther as we know, broke away from the Roman Catholic Church, mm-hmm. but he kept a lot of odd views. Mm. So I've actually been to Luther's Church of the Reformation, where he himself practiced infant baptism. Okay. So he dragged a lot of stuff with him um, into the Protestant movement right. uh, when he was actually kicked out of Roman Catholicism. So his view of it was what's called real presence, where it was not hardcore transubstantiation but it was this idea that when you partake of the elements jesus is present in a special way that he's not present in other times so that's sort of the middle ground and i think the guy that had it right is is the church reformer named zwingli Hmm. who said this is not transubstantiation this is not real presence these are memorials right Mm -hmm. so paul quoting Jesus in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26, says, do this in remembrance of me. Right. So Jesus set up these elements in a way that it's a reminder to us uh, pictorially. You know, God works through pictures. The rainbow, for example, you know, reminds us of the Noahic covenant. Mm. So in the same way, Jesus commanded that his church regularly practice communion or the Lord's table not in a transubstantiation sense, not in a real presence sense, but in a memorial sense. So we are, as Christians, reminded what Jesus did. So the mm. the body would rep- the bread would represent his body, which was sacrificed in our place. The right. cup would represent his blood, which was spilled in our behalf. And so I'm partaking of these elements, and I'm saying to myself, you know, Lord, forgive me. I've I've grown so accustomed to grace. Mm that I've forgotten the price you paid yes. to make this grace possible. Yeah. So we leave the worship service with an attitude of gratitude. Mm. And I think that's Zwingli had it right there. Yes. He was sacrificed once yes, for once. all, <laughs> as Hebrews talks about. Now, Chris, we were talking in the conference room before this. I'm very simplistic. When I look at certain scriptures, I just go to the Last Supper, and Jesus himself was holding physical bread and the cup wine and saying do this in remembrance of me whenever you do this and he he did say this is my body this is my blood but it couldn't have been because he was holding the elements and is that too simplistic or what would you like to add to what andy shared yeah and this is one of those because it it really does encompass so much of what we would consider the church we really should park on this and and really work through it sure and so but i'll try to be very brief as, as much as i can 
remember, again, context is everything. Chapter 6 is the first of his seven IMs in John that aren't covered in the other Gospels, by the way. Mm. So the other seven, or the other six, rather, are clearly symbolic. Chapter 8 is where he says he's the light of the world. It's clearly not a light in the <laughs> sense we're thinking. He's the, the gateway to the sheep in chapter 10, and he's also the good shepherd in chapter 10. The resurrection and the life in chapter 11. Uh, way the truth and the life, chapter 14, chapter 15. He's the vine where the branches. So he mm. says, I am. Clearly, he's speaking symbolically in those other places. Yes. Chapter 6 begins where they're looking for him after he has fed the 5,000. Mm. So, of course, it's a perfect time for right. him to say, right. you guys are looking for a meal. Yep. Let me give you some information here. So what you see that they will quote to you is exactly what Jesus says where um, in verse 53 of John 6, most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. I grew up in a Catholic tradition. So I know that in the Mass, when they give to me the, the body, there's no blood with it. So they'll tell you it's incorporated into it, but they cannot prove that scripturally. What I do know is this. When I read Leviticus chapter 17, verse mm. 10 tells me this, that whenever a man of the house of Israel or the strangers who dwell among you who eats blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and I will cut him off from among the people. So the consumption of literal blood is is completely forbidden to a, a Jewish person. Yes. So if we play this through to its natural conclusion, then Jesus would have then been in violation of the law that night because they will say he did it in the upper room. Mm -hmm. And so that means that Jesus was just a sinner in violation of the law. And if Jesus is a sinner, game over. There's nothing left <laughs> right. at that point. Right. He's just a common man. Jesus was not the first Christian. He was a Jewish man who fulfill, fulfilled perfectly the law. So if the other six are symbolic, there's no reason to think that the, the chapter six, he's speaking also in symbol. So they will point to their tradition and um, so that we don't go too far with this, I would point people to Mark chapter six or uh, Mark chapter seven, where Jesus addresses the the um, I guess you could say the the traditions of the priests yep. where he's they're chastising. You guys are eating without washed hands or unwashed hands. And Jesus quotes Isaiah and said, this is what Isaiah said about you. you your, mm. your lips say one thing, but your heart says another. And you teach as doctrine the traditions of man. So I don't care for church tradition if I cannot prove it scripturally. That's such an important point that Jesus himself came out against the traditions. Mm -hmm. And he went so far as to say, you guys are teaching these traditions as if they're scripture. Mm -hmm. I, I love that. Andy, anything else you want to add before we get into the question? Well, it's just interesting that when you go to Luther's Church of the Reformation in Witt Wittenberg, Germany, you know, where he... Uh, nailed the 95 thesis to the cathedral door there. Um, it's interesting to see that baptismal font for infants. Hmm. And the, the guide there told an interesting story about how um, he kept the water very cold and all the babies were crying because the water was so cold. When it came to his children, he had the water <laughs> heated up. <laughs> but, you know, it just shows you that these Protestant reformers were just men. They climbed out of a tar pit, literally, Mm. of the dark ages yeah. and when you climb out of a tar pit you got a lot of junk on you still and they drug a lot of roman catholicism into protestant christianity and god has called on other people to rectify uh some of those issues even though the reformers did a great job in other areas i have a little book on that if people are interested called ever reforming yeah. Yeah. because as christians we're always reforming Luther didn't have it completely correct. He had a lot of things correct. But um, there was a lot of Roman Catholicism mixed in with Luther, Yeah. not the least of which is anti-Semitic attitudes. Mm. And that's a whole other discussion. Mm. But we're always in a state of reforming. We're Thank always you. in a state of bringing the church back to the purity of God's word in this issue of communion and many other areas as well. So that is just one of the sacraments that Roman Catholicism believe? Don't they believe that you need to keep the sacra sacraments in order to be saved, or am I getting that wrong? On the Catholic side of things, I'll yeah. just answer for that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You must observe and you must keep those, those sacraments because um, without them there's no life, especially as we just read there. If you don't eat my flesh, drink my blood, one of the, seven, uh, one of the sacraments, rather, uh, there's no life in you. 
And so, yeah, there has to be an adherence to the sacraments. That's interesting because it kind of goes against the teaching of the Holy Spirit coming to dwell inside of us. That if we don't follow the sacraments, the Holy Spirit is, is the life of Christ. That's not in us. Mm. Am I misunderstanding that? No, <laughs> it's, you know, it's this perpetual struggle. I mean, the, the Luther mm. and these guys, they did monumental work, but they didn't reform the church in totality. Mm. They reformed it in certain areas that we call the five solas. Right. You know, sola scriptura, sola gratia, grace alone, scripture alone, sola Christus, Christ alone, sola deo gloria, to the glory of God alone, sola fide, salvation by faith alone. They did such wonderful work, but the weakness of Protestantism in some areas is it, it took the progress that Luther and others made and froze that progress into creeds. And a lot of churches you walk into are Protestant in some areas, but they still hold on to Roman Catholic ideas, like Luther did with infant baptism. And so we're always in this process of back to the Scripture, back to the Scripture, back to the Scripture, because we don't think Luther has the final say. We think the Bible has the final say, and we want to be held hostage, as Luther himself said, and captive to the Word of God. This is why I, I just wish that they had gone that step further to say, sola scriptura, great, then use that principle and apply it to everything you believe doctrinally. And you can clear up all the mess that yeah. they had carried over with them. Uh, frankly, I look at a guy like like Luther right now, and I would say he's he's more Catholic than he he's more in that direction than he is towards my direction, mm-hmm. in so many mm-hmm. different ways. So you know they they it was a good principle. It just should have been applied across the board. Yeah, it's just it, he gave us a wonderful principle, and now it's up to us to apply it consistently mm-hmm. from Genesis exactly. to Revelation. So one thing really quick, um, oh gosh, we could go on. I don't want to go on this tangent. I do want to get to the question, but I, br- I thought about the Nicene Creed because you mentioned creeds, and um, that is in, was in like 320, 325 mm-hmm. A.D. And one of the things that I, I love most of the creed, and the Catholic Church has, you say that, I think they call it the Apostles' Creed, and one of the lines in there that they have put in is, I believe in one holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. Now, am I misunderstanding the fact that even in this on Zondervan's academic website, the term Catholic is small c, it's not capitalized. My understanding is the word Catholic simply meant universal, so that didn't mean the Roman Catholic Church as we know it today. Can you guys clarify that? Yeah, that that was created in A.D. 325, mm-hmm. they created at Nicaea. And what people need to understand is that was a response. It, I think the creeds are abused. People try mm-hmm. to make them as a, a bare basement of beliefs that all Christians can agree on. That's not what the creed was set up to do. The creed was set up to refute a heretic named Arius yes. who basically taught that Jesus was a created being. In fact, he had a song. Uh, don't worry, I won't sing it for you. But, oh, please do. But, but it was, um, he, would, he would say things like, there was a time when he was not. And In other words, that Jesus did not exist. Yeah, that he himself was created. He By was the way, created. it's the same recycled heresy that the Jehovah's Witnesses exactly. teach. Not mm. if, but when they show up on your doorstep. They're recycling Arianism. So the Nicene Creed was a response to that. And there's a line in it that says, begotten and not made. Yes. In other words, he was begotten. Monogenes, meaning unique, one of a kind in Greek, not made. Jesus is unique, but he was never a created being. There never was a time in which Jesus was not. And that's what the Nicene Creed is doing. It's refuting Arianism. It's not there to give an ecumenical, here's the bare basement of what we all have to believe in to to rally around uh, truth. And so... When they use the word Catholic, they're not talking there about the Catholic Church as we know it today. This exactly. is A.D. 325. Right. Protestant Re- Reformation wouldn't occur for another, what, 12, 1300 years. Um, they're just talking about universal. We, the universal church, reject modern-day Jehovah's Witness teaching. Mm-hmm. We reject the teachings of Arius. Yes. Now, think about also, it depends. It's in the mind of the reader. Because a Catholic would look at that and say, Catholic, mm-hmm. though it may be small c, it does capture the idea that there is only one universal church. One universal church. And then when they get to the point of apostolic, we would say Acts chapter 3, 
that they they continued or Acts chapter two they continued in the apostles' doctrine. Right. What's handed down? Catholic theology, apostolic succession is Peter was the first pope and then handed down. So there is your your mm. progression. Right. It depends on who's reading it and what they're reading into the creed. So it's like with just about anything that we could look for in a topic. If you're going to read anything in a vacuum and you read your own narrative into it, as we talk about the scripture, you can torture it all day long mm. and get it to say whatever you want it to say. Yeah, good point. Same thing with the creeds. Yeah, we all thing. have biases, sure. and we have to be careful that when we study the scriptures. We've just got three minutes left in this segment. <laughs> we will get to politics in the next segment, oh. but I, I remember going through this uh, creed and studying a little bit of early church history, and I love the word homoousius. Homoousius means being of one substance, and that's what it says in that creed where Jesus the creator, right? He was not made. He was begotten, not made, one in being with the Father. This says being of one substance with the Father. There's a word, homoousius. I love that because mm-hmm. uh, you never hear people talk, use that word. Anyway, just I'd throw that in there. But now let's get to the question before we run out of time. Mm-hmm. The, the reason we got into this is because this was an evan- evangelical church, and many are going this route. They want to bring back some of the church traditions for whatever reason. And so this listener emailed me and said, the church I attend decided to be a convergent church. And I thought, hmm, I know what an emergent church is or was. Now they just changed their name. They're still around. They just don't go by that. But what's convergent? One pastor has tried to assure me they would always preach the gospel. But my discerning spirit during a service, though, tells me they are being deceived by following other rituals. And it's a slippery slope. Please explain what a convergent church is. And am I correct in being extremely concerned? And then I emailed her back, and then she responded, which we will get to on the other side of the break. But, Chris, just in, like, less than two minutes, (laughs) what you said about Convergent Church, you're going... It's just another name. Yeah, I'm looking for some way to become fabulously wealthy. And so the way I'm going to do it is I'm going to write a book of all the made-up words that the modern, you know, kind of uh, seeker-sensitive emergent church has come up with that this is just another one of those. Because mm-hmm. it sounds it, – it's one of those emperors – the emperor wears no clothes. How are you going to go ahead and make fun of, the, of some brand-new made-up word when you don't even know what they mean by it? So how can you come against something, or do you want to be the contrarian, or do you want want to look at them and go, that's profound? Yeah. No, it's just kind of silly, yeah. it, it, ultimately. So they're made-up words. Um, and I know that they'll, they'll explain what they meant by it, but right. just use words that everybody understands rather than couching it in something silly. Well, we will get Andy Wood's response to the Convergent Church when we come back from our break. But I remember when I first brought it up to Chris on the phone, he just burst out laughing. He's going, what are they going to think of next? And we're going to talk about that because this woman emailed me back. Some of the things they're doing works and something to do with communion and just different things that aren't evangelical at all. And we'll talk about that with Pastors Chris and Andy when we come back on Stand Up For The Truth. Keep it right here. Thank you for listening and sharing today's show via StandUpForTheTruth.com slash podcast. Now, back to Stand Up For The Truth. Here's David Fiorazzo. Okay, the Prophecy Conference kicks off this afternoon with Jeremy Higgins and then Chris Quintana, John Higgins, Andy Woods uh, wraps it up tonight, 7 o'clock. Um, I do want to mention Tommy Ice is also speaking at the conference. He's going to be doing uh, tomorrow, uh, 7 o'clock. Um, he wasn't on the original schedule. He was added recently, so you just heard that little uh, ad that played. Uh, Tommy Ice was not mentioned, and he is part of the Great Lakes Prophecy Conference. So back to this question, guys, on the Convergent Church. I'll go to Andy because you didn't have a chance to respond to when you first heard that word and that this is going on maybe in within evangelicalism. What was your thought? Well, this is part of something that we've been struggling with for, I don't know, the past 20 to 30 years. It's the emergent church movement. And part of it is there are these practices that existed in church history, largely taught from a group of people called the Desert Fathers, hmm. that we, you know, this movement says we got to bring these back. Um, you know, the the oil, the liturgy, the making the sign of the cross, all of these kind of liturgical stations of the cross, these sort of liturgical practices. And if we don't go back into church history and retrieve those and bring them back into the life of the church today, Christianity, you know, is missing out and it can't reach full stature. 
that's what that's what's being asked here in this question. Mm-hmm. The the truth of the matter is, if those practices were so essential, why are they not mentioned anywhere in the Bible? Amen. Um, and beyond that, Paul the Apostle said something interesting in Acts 20, verses 29 and 30. He says, after I leave or depart, in other words, when the apostolic era ends, he says, savage wolves will come in and they will not spare the flock. So... We don't find truth in church history in terms of what we should be doing. In other words, just because something is practiced in church history doesn't mean it's a green light to say, let's practice it today. Thank you. Paul says, go back to the beginning. Mm -hmm. Go back to the church in its purity, and that's during the apostolic age. And what's happening with this emergent church movement is they're leapfrogging the Protestant Reformation and they're going into these sort of pre-Protestant dark ages and trying to retrieve these sort of monastic medieval practices. And we think that's why it's it's going the wrong direction. So I want to now get Pastor Chris's response to her email back to me after I inquired a little bit further. Can you give me more details? I haven't heard of that. And she said in an email, and she wants to remain anonymous, and by the way, this is in Wisconsin, big uh, mega church. The pastor explained it as combining evangelical, Pentecostal or charismatic, and sacramental liturgical. When he has communion, he says, make this to be the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Of course, the Catholic Church teaches that this, and he's praying over the elements, that this may become for us the body and blood of Christ. Another thing, she says, that concern me is because they have many online listeners and cannot come to houses to anoint with oil for healing. Pastors would anoint a cloth with oil and send it to the person. Mm-hmm. It reminds me of TV evangelists. Send money and they'll send a cloth. Am I making mountains out of molehills or am I being discerning? They refer to those as point of contact things that they'll send you in the mail. So I've seen napkins. I've seen oil. That's Evangelical to, churches? Uh, the Pentecostal ones, okay. the, the more charismatic ones. But the, the ones that play on people's emotions probably more than anything else. Mm. So it's a way of fundraising. I mean, plain and simple. Let's just call it what it is. So it's intended for that purpose. But um, going through this whole thing, when you get to the point of let's get to the liturgical, it's just another way of saying let's get back to the really ancient stuff that you're talking Mm -hmm. about. And I would want to ask this uh, just uh, I don't want to call it a challenge because I don't want it to sound provocative. But we know that there was a priesthood that God had ordained. We know it because we have it written out in specifics in vivid, minute detail in the Old Testament. Uh, top down from the high priest all the way to the the laity, if you will, Mm -hmm. and the people who served around the temple. We have all of that detail. I would defy anyone to go to the New Testament and give me the equivalent. It doesn't exist. So people are insisting that we go back to something that I say doesn't even have a precedent. Mm. There's no place. you, You can find the word priest or priesthood all through the New Testament, but it always refers to the Old Testament and nothing of the new. The closest that they get to it is in Timothy and Titus where he mentions people like the bishops or the elders or the deacons. Mm -hmm. And none of those are given as far as their specific roles of what they're intended to do. You do this on this day. You do that on that day. You do this offering. None of that exists. So when it comes to Eucharist in the Catholic Church, that is something that only the priest is able to do in that part of the of the actual service where the, the transubstantiation takes place. That's done, and the priest is vested with that power to to be at that part of of that hmm. that part of the of the service. Right. And yet, you cannot prove to me that God ever created a New Testament priesthood because it would have all the same limitations as the last one, which is ultimately what the Book of Hebrews says. So they are com- evidently from this woman's email uh, at their church combining mm-hmm. evangelical, Pentecostal, and the liturgical. So this is something that, as both of you clearly explained, it, it's you don't need to do. And you can get into works very easily once you start combining traditions, and then you have to start doing other things too. Andy, you want to wrap this up? We'll go to the next well, question. Well, I mean, Chris hit a key point. It's They're not acknowledging the Israel church distinction. There's no way to make this system work unless you go selectively back into the Aaronic priesthood. There's a wonderful book on this by a scholar named Ronald um, DeProse. I forgot the title of the book. It's got Israel in the title. 
and replacement theology, I think. People can Google that and find it easily. But he basically documents that all of these kind of liturgical practices came into the church when the church stopped seeing Israel and the church as distinct. And they took that as sort of a green light to go back into Aaron's priesthood and grab information about the priestly robes. Mm, yep. Yeah. Uh, like Chris is talking about a select group of people that are priests that you're to go and confess your sins to. These are not New Testament church age truths. These are Israel truths. Mm. And if you don't have an Israel church distinction in your theology, you, you treat the Old Testament that way. And that's what you come up with, this kind of liturgical uh, theology. Give me 30 seconds. Go. I want people to really fully understand how how poorly these two things merge. Mm-hmm. So if you're talking about charismatic church, very much experiential. Mm-hmm. Modern liturgical, there is an experience in it, and that's about all that they share in common. If you want to know what I, when I read something like this, that they're trying to merge those yeah. things, they're doing it because it's it, it will grab people in and you give whatever somebody wants to keep them engaged. Mm. If you want to know how how well charismatic, modern charismatic and modern liturgical churches mix, grab a bottle of Italian dressing and <laughs> shake it up and it mm. works fine. Put it on the table and come back and look at it in 10 minutes. You've got charismatic and you've got liturgical. You can shake them up and try to make them the same thing, but, but they, they will separate. separate. Yeah. Good yep. point. All right, we've got to get a politics, friends. I mean, we, we, we could do a whole, pa- a whole uh, pa- podcast with these guys on politics, and they both address it. Thank you. And that's one of the questions that we had someone send in. I'm going to have a meeting with one of our pastors at church concerning the fact that they never mention what's going on in politics. I need help with this about, about why they should be addressing it, how Christians should be involved and how the church needs to be ta- taking a stand on biblical issues, and like abortion, they've made that to be a political issue. Um, I'll start with you, Andy. Well, I would say the distinction that people want to make between p- political and biblical is a false distinction. Mm-hmm. Yes, I mean, there's only one standard, and that's biblical. Mm-hmm. And if you're committed to the full counsel of God's word, how can you uh, avoid the abortion issue? That's in the Bible, when life begins. How can you avoid the homosexuality issue? That's in the Bible. How can you avoid parental authority? Mm. That goes back to the Hebrew Shema, uh, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 6, Hero Israel, the Lord your God is one, and it talks about teaching these things to your children. Mm. So when people say, oh, those are political issues, um, excuse me, those are not political issues. Those are biblical issues. In fact, in the year 2016, prior to the presidential election, I did a series at my local church on the Bible and voting. And I said, you will not hear me a single time mention the word Republican or Democrat. You will not hear me a single time mention Trump or Hillary. This is a topical study dealing with what the Bible says about economic issues, social issues, military issues. Mm. And so when people say I'm not political in the pulpit, basically what they're telling me is they want to, you know, avoid a big chunk of scripture. And the truth of the matter is we are stewards. Um, We're not owners, we're managers. And God in his sovereignty has put us in a country where we can influence public policy by voting, running for office, writing uh, editorials, doing news shows like this, and the day will come at the Bema Seat Judgment where he will ask us as Christians, what did you do with the country that I sovereignly placed you in with your biblical worldview and your ability to influence its direction? So, uh, you know, pastors shouldn't be political in the pulpit. How come that never works with Jesse Jackson? On the left, they and get away the left, with it. Yeah. And the Reverend Jeremiah Wright, who I call Jeremiah Wrong, Wrong. <laughs> uh, how come he's not being too political? And so shouldn't we, with the right values, speak up? And if not, when? And if not us, who's going to do it? Amen. Chris, your response to th- this is a very common email, by yeah. the way. Uh, my, my pastor doesn't touch on anything controversial. It's like the Joel Osteen 
you know, best life. Now, you don't want to talk about anything that's, that's you know, ooh, that's so hard to talk about because it gets divisive and it's politics, right? So your response to this. <laughs> We've talked about this. You <laughs> know, my, my, my opinion was uh, there's a hornet's nest and here's a stick. What's the worst that can happen? Um, I kind of loved being able to, to jump into that just because it is always seen as something that's completely forbidden. But let's face it, public policy changes the way that the church operates. So um, if we want to know what happens when politics uh, affects the church, look at what happened when COVID happened in many of the places in the country where yes. churches were told that they couldn't meet. We were non-essential. Absolutely. Mm. So when, when the political begins to affect the, the day-to-day operation of the church, or if what they're proposing in public policy is such an affront to the scripture, if the pastors won't speak about it, they really should find something else to do because they're just at that point hirelings mm. from John 10, as far as I'm concerned. And I, don't, I won't apologize for that at all. So you don't have to go out of your way to speak on politics. It's right there in front of you. So God's not conflicted on gender. He's not conflicted on abortion. He is not conflicted on any such things. And for those people that would say, well, it's going to challenge your 501 because of the Johnson Amendment, I want to remind them that since the Johnson Amendment was put in, not a single church has been brought to court on that matter. That's right. And the only thing I could not do was publicly endorse a particular candidate, though the left gets away with that. Whatever. It's not a level playing field. I never expected that it was. But short of that, I used to tell people, if you want to know how I'm going to vote, I, I won't do it necessarily over the pulpit. But as soon as I step down and, and stand among you, yep. I'm just part of the congregation. I'll tell you everywhere where I get my information. Yeah. And you can have church registration drives at, you know, in, in your church, in the lobby or whatever. Uh, Andy, your response to that? We just got a few minutes left, but just your final Yeah, thoughts. well, let me just tell you a fast story. I, when I first became the pastor of Sugarland Bible Church, I was doing my preaching and teaching, and some people came and visited me in the office, which sometimes isn't a lot of fun for a pastor. <laughs> and they said, you know, Pastor Andy, we think you're being a little too political. And so fortunately wow. on my bookshelf, I had a big, thick book. It goes about 1,000 pages, and that was only volume one, Okay. It's, called, it's entitled um, Patriotic Sermons from the Colonial Clergy. And it's just um, a document that records all of these patriotic sermons. And I said, do me a favor, take this home, read some of these sermons, and you will see that the stuff that I talk about from this pulpit at Sugarland Bible Church is very, very mild compared to what the Black Robe Regiment, etc., was teaching in yes. the day. And so I reject this idea of political versus biblical. Um, anyway, Oh, my goodness, guys. I wish we had another hour, but um, we could talk politics and what's happening in our country. Uh, Lord willing, next time on the phone, we'll, we'll do it. But um, Andy's last podcast with us, we talked about seven principles that made America great. There's a good starting point for our biblical worldview and how we should be addressing things today. Uh, next week, E.W. Jackson joins us on Monday. Actually, no, that's two weeks from now. Never mind. Alyssa Hendricks, uh, Christian Motorcycle Association on Monday. Former homosexual George Carneal on Tuesday. Molly DeFrank about a digital detox for your family. Marsha Montenegro on Thursday and Julian Appling on Friday. God bless you guys. Thank you so much again for sharing the podcast. You're getting it out there. We're not. And uh, we'll see you at the Prophecy Conference at Calvary Chapel, Appleton. It kicks off this afternoon. Keep speaking the truth about things that matter. <laughs>